0: Well good morning. morning. One of the things that you may be caught in that video is when Jason said if you want to come to the men's bonfire, make sure to sign up and register by September fifth. Well unless you are the owner of a particular DeLorean. Chances are that that is impossible for you, uh, but I do know that registration has been extended and you can register to be a part of that uh, today. Also notice as we were watching the video that we only used clips of kids missing the basket, right? We, we are dedicated to keeping our kids humble here at Friendship Church. We don't want to show any pictures of them making baskets, only missing. It's wonderful. Well, happy fall kickoff, everyone. Uh, My wife and I went for a walk yesterday, and we recognized, oh, fall is is here. There are leaves that are turning. We went to the grocery store, and half of the grocery store was dedicated to pumpkin spice. (laughs) Every channel had some sort of football on, and fall is here, my friends. I, I don't know about you, but I still have a list at home of home projects to complete over the summer, mostly undone. Right. Anybody else have that kind of list? Summer projects to complete, mostly undone. That's all right. Uh, next summer will come around. It'll still be here. We're okay. With fall coming, we're, of course, kicking off all of our normal school year programming here at Friendship Church, all of our ministries, and we're starting a new sermon series called Kingdom Logic. If you've been here over the last few months, then you've been here when we have covered the gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8. And we saw in chapters 1 through 4 that Jesus is God in the flesh come to dwell among us. Then in chapters 5 through 8, we saw that because he's God in the flesh come to dwell among us, we should place our faith and our trust in him. Now we're going to be looking... In a short sermon series at chapters nine and 10 of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus teaches lesson after lesson about the kingdom of God. And we want to know these lessons because Jesus says there's nothing more important than dwelling in the kingdom of God and being a part of the kingdom of God. When Jesus introduces his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, he does so with these words and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes and introduces himself and he says, my message is about the kingdom of God, that it's at hand, that it's here. I'm the king. And so the kingdom is here. It is present with us. When he sends his disciples out from town to town, what message does he give to them? And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim what? the kingdom of God and to heal. The message Jesus gives to his disciples to proclaim is the message that the kingdom is here. The king is here. And so the kingdom is here. But What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God like? How does a person get into the kingdom of God? These are some of the questions that Jesus is going to answer in the passages that we're going to be looking at as a part of this sermon series in Mark chapters 9 and 10. And Jesus starts by helping us to understand something very important about the kingdom in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark 9. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses in Mark 9. And in verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus has already declared that the kingdom is here because he is present. And now he says to his disciples, there are some of you here, not all of you, but some of you here who won't taste death before you see the kingdom of God come with power. What is Jesus talking about here? There are some who believe that Jesus is talking about his second coming that Jesus' kingdom coming in power means the consummation of the kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns over all that exists from an earthly throne. They understand Jesus here to be saying, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to return. And at my second coming, some of you will still be alive. Because Jesus knew he was coming back, he just got the dates wrong by a couple of thousand of years, right? Well, we don't really understand Jesus to have ever gotten anything wrong. And so we don't understand Jesus to mean here his second coming. And he just happened to make an error about whether or not some of his disciples were still going to be alive. And so what is Jesus speaking about when he's talking about the kingdom coming in power? And that some of his followers would see it and others would not. Well, perhaps it helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about to know that in all three Gospels where Jesus makes this statement, it is immediately followed by the event that we're going to be looking at today called the transfiguration. Matthew, Mark and Luke. Jesus says this same thing in all three Gospels, and then it is immediately followed in all three of those Gospels by the transfiguration where Jesus reveals the power and the glory of the King to some of his disciples, but not all. Three of the disciples in particular... Peter, James, and John will experience the power of the kingdom on that Mount of Transfiguration in a way that the other disciples would not experience until after they had died. They'll experience it before they taste death. What is this kingdom experience that they have? The next verses begin to tell us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. After six days, six days after what? If we go back to Mark chapter 8, we see that it is six days after Peter proclaimed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's six days after Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? You, you don't have my concerns in mind here. Because he denied that Jesus would need to die. Six days after that, Jesus takes that same Peter and goes up onto a high mountain with the two other members of the inner circle, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And when they are all up there on this high mountain, what happens to Jesus? He is transfigured or transformed, metamorphomai. Is the Greek word here? It means to be totally transformed or changed. All of a sudden, Jesus begins to shine with the glory of God. It isn't just that his clothes become white, they are radiating. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 says that at this point, Jesus' face shone like the sun. You ever been in a dark room? And all of a sudden, somebody pulled the blinds back and the sun hit you square in the face and you went, ah, right? That's bright. That's what's going on here. Only it isn't the shining of the sun, S-U-N, that is at issue. It's the shining of the sun, S-O-N, that is taking place. As the the frail humanity that Jesus has lived in over the course of his life is pulled back temporarily and the power and the glory and the majesty of the Son of God shines through for this moment up on on this mountain. He is transfigured. Well, if that isn't amazing enough, things get even crazier in the next verse. Because in verse four, we read, and there appeared to them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I'm sorry, what? And there appeared to them, Moses gone from the earth, 1500 years, Elijah gone from the earth for 900 years. And they are hanging out, having conversation with Jesus as we read about this. One of the natural questions that comes to our mind is, of all of the Old Testament saints, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and Isaiah? Why not Daniel and Joseph? Why Moses and Elijah in this situation? The Bible doesn't tell us. Some scholars have have pointed out some of the similar experiences that Moses and Elijah had. Both of them fasted for 40 days in the wilderness as Jesus did. Both of them met with God on top of a mountain, as is going to be the experience here. But I think that Moses and Elijah are present, not because of their common experiences, but because of what they represent. What did Moses represent to the Jews? Moses represented the law. Moses is the one who presented the law to God's people. As a matter of fact, they often referred to it as the law of Moses, didn't they? What did Elijah represent to the people of Israel? Elijah was thought of as the the first, most miraculous, and greatest of the prophets to Israel. And so between these two, they represent... The law and the prophets. And we see throughout the New Testament that that the law and the prophets represent all of what God was doing in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 that all of the law and the prophets are about him. In Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says all of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. And so I believe that Moses and Elijah appear here representing all of the Old Testament movement of God which here is saying it all led to this point when God in the flesh the very son of God appeared to his people. There appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine? Well, seeing Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, Peter decides it's time for him to interject. You're shocked. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Have you ever been so nervous or so terrified that you just started talking and you weren't really sure of what you were saying? This has happened to me too many times. And usually about three hours later, I recognize what I said and I have regret over it. And maybe that was the situation with Peter here. He's terrified. Why? Jesus is shining. And on each side of Jesus are two of his boyhood heroes who are back on the earth after 1,500 and 900 years. This is not a normal day. Right? And, and Peter is, is nervous, he's terrified. And so Peter resorts to what comes naturally to him. He begins to fill the silence with talking. What does he say? It's so good that we're here, Jesus. Because we can make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Right Now, what is going on with Peter and his tents? Is Peter trying to figure out where they're all going to sleep tonight up on the mountain? Maybe. But it might also help us to understand what is going on here to recognize that the Greek word for tents... Is exactly the same as the Greek word for tabernacles. Right? They are one and the same. As a matter of fact, if you look at your translation right now, most translations have the word tabernacles rather than the word tents. They are the same word used for both. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was just a big tent. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles is also referred to as the Feast of Tents because it is the same word for tents and tabernacles. And it is distinctly possible that what Peter is doing here isn't trying to figure out the sleeping arrangements up on the mountain, but that he is trying to honor what he considers to be three great men. Let us erect three tabernacles. There are three of us ordinary guys here, Ordinary fishermen, and then there are three of you great men here. Let let the ordinary people erect three tabernacles for you, the great people. While Peter's suggestion may seem noble at first, in fact, it's as wrong as a suggestion could possibly be. What, What is wrong with what Peter is saying? The problem is, Peter is putting Jesus into the same category as Moses and Elijah. Peter understands Jesus to be in the same category as Moses and Elijah. Okay, there's three of us ordinary fishermen here, and then there's three of you great men here. Let's do something special for you three great men. But this is an incorrect understanding. And if Peter understood why Jesus was glowing at this point... He would understand he doesn't go in the same category as Moses and Elijah. Uh, To use a silly illustration, Peter thinks of Jesus and Elijah and Moses as something special. Like a 67 Shelby GT 500. And he says, there's three of you special people here. Three of you Shelby GT500s. He says, and then there's three of us. 78 Renola cars. (laughs) Now we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Peter clearly thought of himself as a better Renola car than James and John, but we'll get there in a couple of weeks. He's like, let us three ordinary people do something special for you three extraordinary people part of what we need to understand, part of the lesson of this mountaintop is that that is a completely wrong way to understand the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, infinitely greater than Moses and Elijah. That Jesus is the one that Moses turned to when he needed the Red Sea parted. That Jesus is the one that Elijah turned to when he needed fire to fall from the sky. Because Jesus is the maker and the judge and the redeemer of all people. That he is God in the flesh. There are not three great prophets up here. There are two prophets and the infinite God who has come to dwell with his creation. And so if Peter understood things rightly, he would understand there is one Shelby GT 500 up on the mountain and five Renola cars, or perhaps a better representation of the difference between God and us. There are five, or there's one, I'm sorry, in Jesus, Shelby GT 500, and there are five rusty broken down unicycles by comparison, because the gap between God and his creation is an infinite gap. Jesus is God in the flesh. He doesn't belong in the same category with Moses and Elijah. He is the one who made Moses and Elijah and sustains Moses and Elijah. God is now going to declare this difference to those who are on the mountain. And we read in verses 7 and 8, And a cloud overshadowed them. Right after Peter is done speaking, it grows dark. In a way that seems beyond natural, a cloud settles upon them so that they can't speak or even think. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, there no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Friends, This isn't some random cloud that overwhelms them. This is the cloud of God's presence that overwhelms them. As we read through the Old Testament, one of the things that we see is the primary way that God represents his presence and his glory with his people is in cloud. Exodus chapter 13, God leads his people by a pillar of cloud by day. Exodus chapter 16, God comes down as cloud and speaks with Moses about the grumbling and rebellion of the people. Exodus 19, the cloud of God settles upon the mountain with lightning and thunder and delivers God's law. Numbers 11, Moses is overwhelmed by the leadership responsibilities and God comes down as cloud and shows that he is putting his spirit upon 70 elders as the cloud spreads. Exodus chapter 14, the tabernacle is completed. There is a holy of holies, and not even God's appointed leader, Moses, can go into it. Why is that? Exodus 40, verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The priests weren't allowed to go into that Holy of Holies. Why is that? Leviticus 16 verse 2, God says, For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. When Solomon finished the temple, the presence of God moved from the tabernacle to the temple. How would the people know that the presence of God now dwelt in the temple? 2 Chronicles 5:13 and 14. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The priests couldn't even stand to minister because of the awesome presence of God in the cloud. In, in that great cloud of God. And for the next 400 years, the cloud of God's presence dwelt over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Until 592 B.C. In 592 B.C., God had been warning the people of Jerusalem for 200 years to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their rebellion and their idolatry, and turn back to him. But the people of Jerusalem had only grown more idolatrous, more rebellious. And in 592 B.C., God comes and says, it's time. The city and the temple will be destroyed by an invading army. And he's going to leave. His presence is going to leave his people before that happens. The people of Israel have allowed themselves to fall into idolatry where the book of Ezekiel says, the elders of Israel are worshiping idols in the temple. We know that the people were sacrificing children to Moloch outside of Jerusalem in a valley. The people are filled with all sorts of violence and sexual immorality against each other. And God said, I will not put up with this anymore. I have been warning you for 200 years. It is now time for you to experience discipline as the nation of Babylon comes in and carries you off. The, The city will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. And before that happens, God's presence leaves. And we see that leaving in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11. As God's presence starts over the mercy seat. Then in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, God's presence hovers over the temple. Then God's presence in Ezekiel chapter 10 moves out to the east gate at the edge of the city. Then in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22, the presence of God represented by the cloud moves out to the Mount of Olives outside of the city and then disappears from God's people altogether. And for the next 600 years, there is no mention of the cloud of God's glorious presence among his people. Even when the people of Israel 70 years later come back, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, there is no mention of the cloud of God's glorious presence being with them for the next 600 years until this day, described in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, when the presence of God in that cloud comes back and upon that mountain declares, I will no longer be known among you in a cloud. My presence will be known among you in the Son of God. I used to be with you in the cloud, but now I am present with you In my one and only Son. There are not three people who need to be honored up on top of the mountain. There is just one, and he is the King of heaven and earth. The one and only Son of God who is God in the flesh. In verse one, Jesus can refer to these men, Peter, James, and John, as having seen the kingdom come in power because they have seen the king come in all glory and majesty and power. Jesus is here, and so the kingdom is here. And Jesus wants us to understand that the kingdom someday will be consummated, and it will be a place where he reigns over heaven and earth. But that here, during his first coming, the kingdom is represented by the king and anywhere that he rules. The kingdom exists anywhere the rule of Jesus Christ exists. So that he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, that if it is by the power of God that he casts out demons, that they know the kingdom of God has come upon them. They know the kingdom has come, come with power because Jesus has come and is exhibiting all power. And these three disciples get an amazing glimpse of the glory and majesty and power of Jesus up on that mountain. A glimpse that Peter would talk about decades later when he wrote 2 Peter chapter 1. And he wrote this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of the majesty. Notice the words power. Majesty. What did did they experience up on the top of that mountain? The majesty and power of the king and his kingdom. And when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I I was an eyewitness to the power of the king, to the coming of the power of the kingdom. And on that mountain, we learn that there is one who is unlike anyone else ever because he is God in the flesh come to dwell among his creation. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the maker. He is the appropriate judge. He is the redeemer. He is God among us. He's unlike anyone else who has ever lived. And what is our response to recognizing that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth? What's the appropriate response to that? I think God the Father proclaims the appropriate response. He says, this is my son, and do what? Listen to him. If he is the king of heaven and earth, if you're his subject, then what's the appropriate response? Listen to what he says and obey it. And so we recognize that within the kingdom, we see those who are following the king because there are those who are concerned about listening to Jesus and doing what he says. Before Jesus leaves his disciples, he says, I want you to go and make disciples, and I want you to teach them everything that I've commanded you. How unbelievably arrogant, even insane would that be if Jesus was not the king of glory. Teach them everything I have commanded you. But he's able to say that because he is the king of heaven and earth. And we all need to know what he says, listen to it, and obey it. Let me just ask you right now to take a moment and prayerfully examine your life. Is there any area of your life that needs to come into greater submission to King Jesus? We just got done with a four-week series on work. Are you working for your purposes, or are you fully submitted to Jesus in and through your work? Is my behavior in my marriage primarily about me and my wants, or is it about submission to King Jesus and what he calls me to as a husband? Has my approach to church been about me and my desires Or have I been fully submitted to King Jesus? My approach to parenting or grandparenting, is there greater submission to King Jesus needed in those things? He is the king of all creation. He is the one who reigns in our life. Listen to him. Listen to him. As Jesus and the three are coming down from the mountain, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, hey, you guys, don't tell anybody about what you just experienced. At least not yet. At least not yet. Look at verses 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Several places in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has done something miraculous. And then he's told people not to tell anyone. Mark chapter one, he healed a leper and he said, don't tell anyone. Mark chapter five, he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead and says, hey, you guys, whoever was in here, don't tell anybody about this. Mark chapter seven, he heals a person who's deaf and he says, hey, you guys, don't tell anybody what you saw here. Jesus is regularly telling people not to share what they are experiencing. Perhaps because he didn't want people coming just to see the show. Perhaps because he had a very specific timing for when he would go to the cross. And he is managing that timing as he goes throughout his life. Whatever the reason, Jesus on multiple occasions told people, don't share this. But we see here, there is an end to that moratorium. That when Jesus rises from the dead, everything changes. And then they are to share. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, there's going to come a day when I want you to share all of this with everyone. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus says, I want you guys to tell everybody about it. I think that's what they mean by proclaim it on the housetops. Tell everybody about this. Tell them that you have spent time with the king of heaven and earth and that he has died for people's sins and that he has risen so that they might have new life. That's our mission, to share Jesus with everyone around us. Jesus says to his followers, be my witnesses. Tell everybody about me. And we are those who proclaim it from the housetops. We do this personally in our lives. The people that we work with, our neighbors, our friends, the people we happen to run into over the course of a day. We also do this as a church family, seeking to be on mission, seeking to be on mission together as a church. One of the ways that this church has done this over the years is by starting the Shakopee campus. Today on fall kickoff, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the planting of the Shakopee campus. And as we're about to hear, the reason for the planting of the Shakopee campus was so that the name of Jesus might be proclaimed from the housetops in a way that was further and wider than was possible here. I want us to listen to this discussion between the current Shockabee campus pastor, Kenny White, and the original Shockabee campus pastor, Mike Golay, and listen to the reasoning behind why the campus was started and see how it aligns with this idea of shouting it from the
1: rooftops. Hi, I'm Matt Clausen, the Prior Lake campus pastor at Friendship Church. And I'm Kenny White, I'm the Shakopee campus pastor. This year marks our 20th anniversary at the Shakopee campus. God has done some amazing things these years. And we want to take some time to celebrate the great things that God has done and to remember them. That's right. In fact, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mike Golay, who is the first campus pastor at Shakopee, and uh, he was able to share a little bit about what God had done through the years. Enjoy this interview with us. Mike, before we get into kind of the, the Shakopee specific stuff. Can you share a little bit about how you, how you came to friendship? What was, what was the circumstance and situation? And how'd that work?
2: It was a dare actually, when I was in high school, we had been out committing some petty crimes in a car with a friend of mine and he felt guilty. He attended friendship church. So this is a Christian that was not walking with the Lord. And he said, that's it, I'm going to church in the morning after we had gotten back to a friend's house. So I thought he was bluffing, I thought he was just joking and it was even taboo to joke about, you know, God and the church back then. And Mm -hmm. I said, look, if you go to church, I will go with you, pick me up. And uh, he called me back then, we didn't have cell phones, so he called the house phone on Sunday morning. He said, I'm gonna be there in 30 minutes. I said, you gotta be kidding me, his name is Mark. And he showed up and I came to church and that was in February of 1987. It was the Prior Lake campus Mm. and I met Mark Gold. Uh, We attended the youth group. Mark Gold was the original youth pastor at Friendship Church. And he invited me to a Bible study right after that service. It was on spiritual gifts. I'll never forget it. He gave us our workbooks and the assignment for that week was was chapter one. And this book talked about sin, its impact, Mm. the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord that verse really hit me. Hmm. And I had like a multimedia show in my mind of all my sins and I
1: wept. Hmm. Where did you come into the role at, uh, at Friendship? As I understand it, the campus wasn't built yet. Right. Were they, where were they at in the process and how did, how did that kind of take place? Where were you at in the world when they called and said, hmm. hey, uh, God has a wonderful plan for you and uh, this is what it is?
2: Well, as you may know, uh, the Prior Lake Campus existed since the late 70s and continued to balloon in its attendance, especially through the 90s. By the late 90s, there were over you know, 1,000, even pushing 2,000 at the Prior Lake Campus. And so they, the leaders, had an idea of opening up a second campus. And the model of a second campus was brand new back then. Right. Up until then, church was the thing. You just kept building and enlarging, but Prior Lake just didn't have any more space. Mm -hmm. It had been added on to three to four times already. While they're having discussions about that, I'm living in Israel because I had gone to Moody Bible Institute in the 90s, did my degree in Jewish and modern Israel studies, moved to Israel, and there I was. They called me and said, would you be the person to plant, start, and nurture a campus in Shakopee? 30% of the attendees of Prior Lake Campus were from Shakopee. Mm. And I prayed about it and I asked my wife what she thought and to uproot an Israeli from her country is very difficult. And she said, we should do this. And that's when I came back in 2003, we launched this campus here at Shakopee in February of then. And it has been amazing to see all those people on launch day and to see Friendship Church grow on two campuses yeah. since, uh, since then even.
1: Would you say then the, the vision at that time was that, um, hey, we need to reach Scott County or was it, we can't hold any more people or how would you describe the, just the, I don't know, the, the spirit of the church during that time and, and maybe even the heart of the vision behind it?
2: It it has always been the vision of Friendship Church to reach every soul within Scott County. Everyone took that job seriously and invited friends to church and missions started to develop. So Friendship Church became a missionary and local outreach church. And we called ourselves One Church to Fishing Ponds, the fishing pond of Shakopee and the fishing pond of Prior Lake for the sake of of Scott County.
1: As you think over the um, relationships at Friendship, what would you say really encapsulates maybe the DNA of the church?
2: Well, the front door has always been extremely welcoming, mm. hospitable, and relational. Mm-hmm. And Friendship has always lived its name, Friendship, mm-hmm. where people can go straight off the street and feel immediately like they belong. It's been a very unique and relational church, and it's one of the reasons why I love it so much and continue to come here. You you know when you go to Friendship Church, you're going to get the the Word of God, the full Word of God, not the cultural edited version. It's always been able to maintain that Bible-based. These two things are the, the reasons why I love this church so much and the DNA that still continues and migrates to new leaders, including you.
1: We're excited to see what God has done over the course of the last 20 years. And we're excited to see what God is going to do in the years to come.
0: God's design for his people is that they would proclaim the name and work of Jesus from the housetops. Our desire as a church is that we do whatever we can in order to proclaim the name and work of Jesus from the housetops so that we can reach people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we do so in remembrance and proclamation of that gospel message. That because of my sin, I was separated from God. But that Jesus died in my place so that my sins might be forgiven and I might have his righteousness credited to my account. And we celebrate that substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus every time we go to this table. Uh, I want to encourage you as we are going to uh, sing together about God's goodness and praise Jesus' name together when you're ready to make your way to the tables in the corners of the room and get the elements of the bread and the cup that represent Jesus' body and his blood, the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf, and you can return to your seats with those, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a moment. Let's praise Jesus' name together.